This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. If you remember how bad the coronavirus outbreak was in the United States a year ago, Right now in India, it's worse. In fact, it's the worst outbreak the world has seen since the beginning of the pandemic. Healthcare workers in India are getting sick. Hospitals are overrun. There aren't enough beds or oxygen tanks or drugs. Over 4,000 people in India died on Saturday. That's just what's been reported in India's highest single day death toll. So people in India have been posting on Twitter and on Facebook to ask for help to crowdsource medical supplies and to demand that the government take action. But then, some of those posts disappeared at the request of the government. Zach Beecham, a Vox senior correspondent and co-host of the Worldly Podcast, is here to explain. Hey, Zach. Hi, Teddy. How are you doing? Good. So tell me what's going on in India right now at a high level. You you mentioned the thing, right? The most important thing in India and probably the entire world right now is the Indian COVID outbreak because it's so bad. Uh, you mentioned the, the official statistics. It's worth noting that according to sort of reliable estimates by experts, those official statistics understate the toll of what's happening by somewhere between a factor of 1.5 and five times. Right, so there could be five times as many people dying in India as there right. are right now. We just don't know, right? In part because you know it's a huge country with a large rural population and a, a comparatively weak state. By which I mean a government that's not, it doesn't have the capacity to tightly regulate and run all of the different parts of its territory in the way that a, you know a lot of. Uh, wealthier countries do. And so as a result, you have spotty statistics, and especially in these rural areas where there isn't a lot of evidence being gathered. But the point is, right, this is just just immense, immensely significant. And during all of this, there was a major election in five different Indian states, one of which was tightly contested by the ruling government. And, and this was all preceded, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in depth, I'm sure, later on, by an increasing authoritarianization of Indian politics. The the ruling government, the BJP, is led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and they've been working for for many Mm -hmm. years now to consolidate power in their hands and marginalize their political opposition. And so they've been doing that amidst the coronavirus outbreak, and they tried to do that in the last election. So it feels like a lot of different things right now inside India are sort of coming to a head during this, this truly disastrous outbreak. And tell me about these takedowns the Modi government did on these Facebook and Twitter posts. Uh, What were those about? The government asked the platforms to take down a number of different posts relating to their handling of the coronavirus outbreak. Now, you know, in a lot of democratic states, and India still has democratic elections, right, even though it's Uh going down the authoritarian road in a lot of ways, that's pretty normal, right? You get... COVID misinformation that you want deleted and a government may intervene to say, you know, we'd like that removed. So Japan and South Korea, for example, uh, frequently ask Twitter and Facebook to remove posts that violate domestic law in various different ways, not necessarily COVID-related, but in general, it's not like a crazy, unheard-of thing to do in a democracy. The thing that was striking about the India case is that a lot of these posts were not 
actually COVID misinformation. They were just critical of the government. Mm. They were saying that the prime minister was doing a bad job or that policy choices by the government had contributed to the rise of the outbreak. That's what was really notable about them. They seem to be blatantly undemocratic efforts by the Indian government to corral what kinds of information Indians can get and cover its own butt when it comes to its disastrous handling of the coronavirus outbreak. And what were Twitter and Facebook saying about why they did this exactly? Because if your point is, you know, these are just criticisms, right? Do they violate the terms of service of these platforms? Some posts did. Right? I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There's a good article in Recode, that you, a publication you may have heard of if you're listening to this podcast, uh, that reviewed about 50 of the tweets that Twitter blocked or deleted. And, and some of them were misleading, right? That That's to the government's credit. It's fine. There's not just an authoritarian power grab, but some of them weren't. So for instance, there was a, a Vice article about um, mm-hmm. a Hindu religious bathing ritual called the Kumbh Mela that was being held in the River Ganges. You get like millions of people crowding together who want to dip into the water together. Uh, they were arguing that this was uh, likely to have contributed to the coronavirus outbreak. Subsequent epidemiological research suggests it almost certainly was. An Indian court recently called it uh, a super spreader event. And that article from Vice was one of the things that the government asked Twitter to take down. Another example is a political Mm. cartoon that shows uh, Modi making a speech over burning coffins. So there's this thing about rallies and there's a caption in there that makes sense because he hosts really big rallies and did in the the election campaign that just happened. Uh, like that that's not COVID misinformation. That's just a straight argument that the government was doing something wrong and had contributed to the problem. And yet they wanted that taken down anyway. And this isn't the first time that Modi has sort of flirted with, with this censorship, right? No, there was another pretty notable round of takedown efforts in February where for a brief period of time, the Twitter account for uh, an Indian news magazine called The Caravan, it's an English-language publication, but very, very well-respected and okay. uh, widely seen as sort of a reliable, highbrow source uh, when it comes to Indian politics and society, it disappeared. Right, The account was taken down briefly. This seemed to be in response to its coverage, The Caravan's coverage, of uh, farmers' protests. There was a, a series of big protests against agricultural reforms that Modi's government was pushing, and uh, the caravan, like other publications in India, was covering them. And for whatever reason, the Indian government thought it could get the caravan taken off of social platforms. Twitter reinstated it pretty quickly. And, and, and Twitter pushed back, to its credit, against this broad trend towards uh, censorship from the Modi government. And this really is what it is, censorship. But the, the fact that the platforms have had to push back against some of this doesn't mean that it isn't worrying in terms of the ability of the Indian state to try to push around these big social media giants. And Zach, is this campaign from Modi to sort of silence uh, dissent part of a, a bigger narrative here? Um, you mentioned a moment ago that you know India is a democracy, but they've been trending towards some more authoritarian instincts. Can you just take me a, a, a zoom out picture of kind of where India is on these questions of democracy and, and how Modi has been changing India. It's really important to put all the the tech stuff in that context, right? Because it doesn't make sense absent an understanding of the overall model of, of sort of soft authoritarianism that Modi is pushing, which is reminiscent of what you've seen in countries like Hungary, uh, which is probably the, the clearest example of this model at work. So 
you know, India for a very, very long time has prided itself on being a secular democratic state, right? Sort of the defining ethos of the country after independence was that the, you know, it would be officially secular, it would be Mm -hmm. a democratic state, and its economics would be broadly socialist, you know, state-driven development sort of model. Uh, Over time, those first two have shifted fairly significantly, especially with the rise of Hindu nationalism in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, currently, the BJP is a is dominant. That's Narendra Modi's party, and it's a Hindu nationalist party, which really sees the Indian state as properly a government for Hindus, who make up about 80% of India's population. So they want to remake the entire state along these lines of uh, a more Hindu communalist, that's the, the term, not sectarian in India, it's communalist mm-hmm. or communal, um, communal government. So it's also become more free market over the course of time, which has created some opportunities for the Modi government actually in terms of selective privatization and using the state to reward friendly, super wealthy people. There's some evidence that that's happening in India. But then the third, and I think this is primarily related to the first one, has been a a movement away from democracy itself, right? Part of accomplishing the Hindu state has been consolidating the power of the BJP, which is the Hindu faction, the Hindu supremacist Mm. faction, as some might refer to it, which is, I think, not an inaccurate way of describing their politics. So they want to crowd out anyone who challenges their vision of dismantling the secular state as existed and replacing it with, uh, you know, with, with their preferred Hindu government. So there are a few different ways they do that, right? They've corrupted the election system in a few ways, seemingly somehow influenced the Nonpartisan Elections Commission to making a lot of decisions in recent elections that favor them. They have restructured the campaign finance system, so all the stuff goes through a kind of opaque government-run system where nobody else really knows where the donations are coming to except the government. And this allows it to accrue lots of money to itself without any real supervision or check on where the money is coming from. Gotcha. They've worked to marginalize minorities, including uh, stripping Muslims of citizenship and revoking the autonomous status of Jammu and Kashmir, which is a contested territory of Pakistan. But I think most notably for the tech story uh, specifically is that they've used social media as a counterweight to a potentially hostile press, which they've tried to suborn in other ways, right? So, for instance, withholding government ad dollars from uh, publications that publish anti-government arguments, right? So basically selectively rewarding publications that are friendly and making it hard for other ones to compete. But social media, and especially WhatsApp, is really popular in India, and they use WhatsApp to send a deluge of misinformation about their opponents to counter uh, mainstream accounts of their moves away from democracy, to basically create an alternative informational ecosystem, for BJP supporters and for Indians who are inclined to vote for the party in other elections, right? And so this exerting control over Twitter and Facebook is a way of extending this campaign of information control, which is part of this broader anti-democratic push to establish a Hindu India. That's the the sort of TLDR of what's going on in India. So Zach, if you're Twitter or Facebook, you would be pretty concerned about not listening to this government, given everything you just laid out, no? If I were these companies, I would be increasingly worried in the way that I am about dealing with any kind of transitional regime, except that India is not just any other government, right? It's not just one state that wants to control information. It is one of the largest countries in the world. 
right? It is a huge market where you've got lots of people who use your services and you want to continue to operate in there. But at the same time, if you comply with the demands of a government that looks increasingly authoritarian, is especially harsh and hostile towards its Muslim minority, uh, the odds that you're going to see the kind of internal turmoil among their employees that you've seen surrounding, for example, operating in China will increase. Mm -hmm. So, I feel like the the tech giants here are stuck in a really difficult situation where the government, which is really increasingly willing to start punishing corporate entities that cross them, could start doing things to restrict their access and otherwise hurt their ability to operate in India if they don't follow things like these takedown orders. If they do, they run the risk of yet another flashpoint between the sort of progressive liberal sensibilities of their staff and the bottom line of the company, which as we've seen in previous instances has been destabilizing for these companies and and created huge morale problems and reputational problems and and generally the kind of thing they don't want to deal with. So it's a real mess and it's a sign of if this, this model of competitive authoritarianism continues to rise in India and in other countries including possibly the United States, right? <laughs> there are going to be more and more problems for these tech companies down the line. Zach Beecham, a senior reporter at Vox and a host of the Worldly Podcast. You guys just did a whole episode about India, what was it, last week? Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Daddy. This was great. <laughs> 